and his name shall be called Everlasting Father. Our American culture doesn't seem to think much of fathers. In sitcoms, the father is often the doofus, not to be taken seriously, or sometimes even the antagonist, or obstacle to whatever the wife or son or daughter is trying to accomplish in that episode. Hilarity or drama ensues, and then the antagonist, or doofus dad, finally comes around to his family's point of view. And we might as well call this doofus dad everlasting with how often this trope is repeated. I wish our media had more examples of biblical fathers, but when I say biblical fathers, I mean fathers who do what the Bible instructs them to do, not necessarily the fathers who are described in the Bible. Because the Bible, being a record of fallen human beings, certainly has many examples of bad fathers. We have blind Isaac, who couldn't tell his children apart. We have Eli and Samuel, two prophets whose sons used their authority for personal gain. We have King David, even, who fathered more children than he could keep track of and could not or did not rebuke them when they did evil, and we have many more. But besides these mortal fathers, we have also the everlasting word, instructing us in who we should be, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. These words describe God, our Father in heaven, whom we would be like. What fathers we would have if they strove to be like this God, and what leaders we would have if they could be half so good as this. How wonderful it is then that the prophet Isaiah promised us such a leader, one who would be called Everlasting Father, for he would truly be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Unlike King David, he would neither die nor lose track of his wayward and rebellious children, but instead bring those children to repentance and righteousness. We know Jesus as the Son of God, who is like his Father, and he is our King. As King, he is Father to us, and as God, he is everlasting. He is a model for us as no human in the past ever was or could be, and he is present. Father to us today, tomorrow, and evermore. Good morning and Merry Christmas. Welcome back to our church online. I'm Associate Pastor Matt Sprinkle, and I'm going to be continuing our series that is titled, And His Name Shall Be Called. We're looking at four different titles given to Jesus Christ, the promised king, what the Jews called the Messiah. The word Christ means Messiah. The word Messiah in Christ means anointed or king. There was a promise made to God's people from the beginning of the scriptures, from the beginning of mankind, to Adam and Eve, that runs all the way through the New Testament, Old Testament, and it culminates in the birth of Jesus Christ, who is the promised Messiah. And the prophecies or the, the proclamations from God that this would happen, that he would send his son, that he would send a king to save us from our sins and remake the world, those were made throughout the history of God's people. But the one that we're looking at comes from the prophet Isaiah. And this prophet lived 700 years before Christ was born. And he lived during a very dangerous and troubled time. At the time of Isaiah, the, the nation of God's people, Israel, had been broken in two. There was the southern kingdom, Judah, which was more faithful to the Lord. And there was the northern kingdom, Israel, or what they called Samaria, which was totally unfaithful and apostate and had turned away from God. And in the middle of the ministry of Isaiah, uh, the king of Syria and the king of Israel, they decided to invade Judah to try to destroy Judah and take captive Jerusalem. 
Now, the king of Judah at that time, Ahaz, he was not one of the good kings. And he saw Israel and Syria joined together to destroy his nation. And so did he cry out to the Lord? No. He cried out to the gods of Assyria, the Assyrian gods. And he sent emissaries to the Assyrian king, asking him to come and rescue Judah. And that's what the Assyrian king did. He brought his armies. He destroyed Damascus, the capital of Syria. He enslaved their people. And then he began to invade and conquer Israel, the northern kingdom. And he slowly, from north to south, took over that entire nation, captured its capital city, Samaria, and put the Israelites all into slavery. Now, this was a very dark time, politically, economically. There was blood being spilt. There was palace intrigue. Everything was gloom. And in the middle of all that, God speaks to his people through the prophet Isaiah, and he promises that in the coming days, in the future, when he sends his king, that he will reverse all of that, that he will take their darkness and turn it into the light. That he'll take their gloom and turn it into joy. That he will protect them and provide for them and guide them. That he will establish his kingdom on earth and this kingdom will never fall. It will never be conquered. Not like the Israelite kingdom of Samaria was conquered. Not like the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered. This kingdom established by this king will exist and rule and expand across the globe until all the world is a part of the kingdom of this Messiah. It's an amazing promise. And when you ask yourself, how is this possible? You only have to look back 2,000 years and think about how the church started, how the first followers of Jesus must have felt when Christ ascended to the throne and said, now, go get all the nations and make them my disciples. And here we are 2,000 years ago in California on the other side of the planet, worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How is that possible? And the answer that we find in this prophecy is that the zeal of the Lord of hosts has done it. And so this is one of my favorite promises, passages, prophecies in the scripture. We're going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to zoom in on one of the four titles, which is Everlasting Father, a title given to Jesus Christ, a title that can be very confusing, but as we begin to understand it has tremendous promise, encouragement, and stimulation for our faith. And so let's read it together. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for who, uh, for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are the northernmost tribes in the nation of Israel, the northernmost point of God's people. In former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He's going to glorify the region of Galilee. And if you grew up in the church or you're a Christian, you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Jesus comes from Galilee. He comes from Nazareth. He comes from that northern region of Zebulun and Naphtali. 700 years later, God fulfills this promise by bringing Christ out of that area to minister in his nation. And then it says the people. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We need light today. Our land is covered with darkness. Our nation, our our state, in many cases our communities, some in our families, there's darkness all around. And this is a promise that this king will overcome the darkness with light. You have multiplied the nations. This is The prophets speaking of what God has done. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor 
you have broken as on the day of Midian. You remember the days of Midian when the Midianites ruled over Israel during the time of Gideon and his 300 men? The Midianites were a southern tribe that ruled over the nation of Israel. They oppressed them. They took their harvest. They took their people as slaves. It was darkness. And yet God raised up a judge, Gideon. And with Gideon and 300 men, God broke the yoke. He broke the bonds of the Midianites. He set them free. And that was a day of great rejoicing. And just like that, from God's people's past, through the prophet Isaiah, God is saying that is going to be your future. The rods and the chains that are on your back and in your hands, I'm going to snap them. I'm going to make it joyful like harvest time, like when you get paid, payday, when you get a bonus that you didn't expect. That's the kind of joy you're going to experience in the kingdom of this coming king, as we know, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You're going to take all the weaponry and all the stuff they wear and everything they brought to bear against you. And that's just going to be, they're going to be so utterly defeated that you're just going to have all this stuff lying around. There'll be nothing to use it for but fuel. That's how, that's how complete and total your victory is going to be against your enemies. And that's how it is for those of us in Christ. We have victory over Satan and over all of his forces. We have victory over sin. We're on the march, putting to death sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have victory in the face of death because we know that the moment we close our our eyes in this mortal body, we open our eyes with the Lord and we live forever and ever. And so death has no sting. Every form of violence that our enemies can bring against us Those things themselves cannot stop us, but rather we are able to turn those things as an instrument of faith and have victory and overcome. And then it says more specifically about who's going to do this. How is all this amazing stuff going to happen? I mean, these are big promises just on the front side of this prophecy. How is this going to happen? And then you think, and then I'm going to send you this big, buff, powerful, you know, 45 legion general who's going to come in and he's going to save you. And it says all these good things are going to happen because... For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Wait a minute. A baby is going to do this? How is a baby going to provide all this salvation? And it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. As he grows into manhood, the government, his, this whole world, all forms of rule will be upon his shoulder. He will make this thing happen that is prophesied above. The government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then it goes on to further describe his rule and reign, the kingdom that he's going to establish, the kingdom that Jesus Christ established on this earth 2,000 years ago and that has been growing ever since. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's just going to grow and grow and grow and grow, and it's never going to stop. No end. It's never going to stop. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteous from this time, this time forth and forevermore. This kingdom is going to be characterized by justice and righteousness. And how is it all going to be done? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. The Lord himself will do it because he is zealous. He is committed. He is not going to turn away. He's not going to get tired or distracted or give up. His zeal is going to carry it through all centuries from the time that this Messiah is born all the way through until he returns. This is the promise of this prophecy. This is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible to me. And you can see why it would be so beautiful to them. 
They're living in darkness and gloom. They're living in bondage and slavery. And here through the prophet Isaiah, God is saying that's all going to change. Because to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And he has these marvelous titles. And that's what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. And these titles, they're amazing. They tell us about his nature. For example, we looked at a wonderful counselor. You need wisdom. You need direction. You need strategy. Someone who is playing 5D chess and the author of every story in history. That is this king. He is the wonderful counselor and he has a plan. He is the mighty God. There's no one stronger than this king. He is almighty. He has the strength of almighty God. Can death stop him? Can sin stop him? Can Satan stop him? Can man stop him? No. No force is stronger than he is. His kingdom will come. His kingdom uh, will be done. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He has a plan and he has the power to execute that plan. And with this kind of wisdom and power, we also see that his name is Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. In what sense is Jesus Christ the Everlasting Father? This isn't an easy question to answer, and I don't pretend to have all the answers to the question. I mean, I think I understand Wonderful Counselor, and I think I understand Mighty God, but how could Jesus Christ, the man who we know to be the Eternal Son, how is he truly called Everlasting Father? There's a mystery in this. And honestly, I'm okay with that mystery because of what it reminds me. I'm reminded of all that I do not know and I do not understand about Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus speaks plainly to us the way that a father speaks to his little children in terms that they can understand. And it's true that you don't have to have a deep understanding of all the mysteries of Christ to be saved. You only have to look. You only have to call upon him. You only have to believe in his name. This is how Charles Spurgeon, one of the the great pastors of centuries past, came to Christ. He was a son in a pastor's home, and his grandfather was a pastor, and yet he had great guilt and weight and a sense of his sinfulness and his unworthiness for God. The the weight of the law, of God's righteous requirements for our lives, it, it buried him as a young man. And no matter what people said or did, he could never quite understand the good news, the gospel, the salvation that Christ was offering. And then he got caught in a snowstorm, and he ended up at the small church on a Sunday because he couldn't get to his church because of the snowstorm. And he got in there as a small country church in England, and The pastor couldn't show up because of the snowstorm. And so one of the men in the church, a farmer, he stood up to preach because there was no pastor to preach. And he opened up the scriptures and he came to the part of the Bible where the the nation of Israel was being bitten by snakes for their rebellion against God. And Moses was told to hold the snake up on a pole. And if anyone just looked at the snake, they would be healed. And that was the passage. Just look at the snake. And he stood up and he said, well, anybody can look. You don't have to move. You don't have to get up. You don't have to speak. You have to just look. Just look to Christ. Just put your hope in him. Just believe what he says, that his death was your death. That the sin that you've committed was placed upon Christ, and it was buried on the ground, and it was brought back up in his resurrection. And that if you put your faith and confidence in him, you're brought into the family of God. You're washed of your sin. You're born again. Just look. And he looked down in the pews, and he saw this young man who looked miserable. He said, young man, you look miserable. You look like a man who's lost in hope. But all you have to do is just look. And Spurgeon, who had been around great preachers his whole life, he said it was like the light shined into a darkness. He just, he just, he understood. He understood that he simply had to look and receive and call upon. And when he did that, that moment, God made him born again. And so there's a sense in which you don't have to know every deep thing about Jesus Christ to put your faith and hope in him. 
But there are things about Christ that are deep and wide and high and long. In, in Colossians, Paul says that all the mystery, all the wisdom of, uh, all, sorry, uh, what does it say in Colossians? It says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Hidden treasure in Christ. There, there is wisdom and knowledge and things to know about Jesus Christ that we'll spend our whole life, whole life unwrapping, getting to know him better, understanding who he is. And so when I read, he's the everlasting father, I scratch my head. I'm like, what does that mean? And that's okay. That's a part of the joy of living your life in Christ, getting to know God better as God reveals more and more of himself to you. For example, there are several passages in the New Testament that speak of Christ in terms that are just hard to get your mind around. For example, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Whoa. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Who is this? But do you have it? Do, do you get it? I mean, I just read the passage to you, so you must totally understand every part of that, right? Every clause, every term. I'm sure you're ready to write a five-paragraph essay to explain to me the meaning of Christ in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. See what I mean? It's not that you don't understand anything. It's that there's so much there. It's like, it's like trying to put water in your hands at the base of a waterfall. And collect all the water from the waterfall. It just keeps coming. And you catch as much in your hand as you can. And you go and you put it in the bucket. And you come back and you get more. That's what it's like to know Christ. There's much more than meets the eye. Here's another passage. This is from the brother of Jesus Christ. This is Jude 5. It says, Now I want to remind you, Christians, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, Jesus Christ, the one we worship, the one who was born in the manger, the the child of Mary, born of the Holy Spirit, the one who was... uh, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended to the throne, the one who rules and reigns over heaven and earth now, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Now, how could Jesus, who wasn't going to be born for 1,400 years, how could he have saved a people out of Egypt? Wait a minute. The Israelites came out of Egypt 1,400 years before Jesus Christ was born. Yes, the Lord led them. He spoke from the fire, the burning bush. He led them in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And the Lord fed. Wait a minute. That's Jesus? How could that be Jesus? Jesus is the one who delivered them out of Egypt? You're blowing my mind here, Jude. And then Paul goes on. He says the same thing. In Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, 8 through 9, it says, We must not indulge in sexual morality, as some of them did in Israel. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. So wait a minute. The Israelites, who had sexual relationships with the Moabite women, committed sexual immorality, and because of their sin, and because of their rebellion over and over again, the Lord sent snakes into their camp, which bit them, right? 23,000 died. You're saying that that was the Lord Jesus, Paul? Yes. What? How could someone who wasn't going to be born for 1,400 years, be the ones who, put, who, who, who they put to the test. This is who we're talking about. We're talking about the uncreated creator. We're talking about the author of all things. 
We're talking about the Ancient of Days, the Eternal One, the God-Man, Jesus Christ. And yes, we can know Him because He speaks to us, because He condescended, because He became one of us, because He communicates to us in sentences and verbs and pronouns. And yes, we can understand, but we cannot think for a moment that when we look at Jesus Christ, He's like some Christmas present that we have. We cannot think for a moment that we have unlocked and unwrapped and studied and pursued all the mysteries because we have been here and done that. Look, I've, I've celebrated Christmas. You know, I'm, I'm, almost, I'm 41. I know how it goes. You know, they got the manger and there's no place for him to lay his head and the angels. And yeah, yeah, I know. I know. The baby Jesus. I get it. No. I don't have Jesus in a box, bagged and tagged and measured and wrapped like a Christmas present. And neither do you. There's much, much more to know about this person. And so when I come to a title like Everlasting Father, I feel like my mind is blown. Have you ever seen the movie Doctor Strange? It's one of those uh, Marvel movies. And Doctor Strange is this scientist. He's, a, he's actually a surgeon. He's all into you know science. He doesn't believe in anything spiritual. It's, everything's material. He gets his hands all jacked up. And so he goes east to this like mystic temple to learn from this wizard uh, how to like heal his hands. Anyway, the wizard blows his mind, literally. She touches his forehead and she sends him into outer space like a rocket ship to see the entire universe and all the mysteries that he does not understand. And when he snaps back into his body, the only thing he can say is, teach me, because she just blew his mind. She showed him a reality that he had no idea existed. And when you study the scriptures about Jesus Christ, when you get to know who he is and you see all the wisdom and knowledge that is hidden in him, it makes you say, teach me. And that's what I've been doing this last couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this message. Everlasting father? What does that mean? Lord, teach me. And I haven't learned everything, but what I have learned has been very encouraging and I want to share that with you for the rest of the message. First of all, everlasting father, it does not mean God the father. We cannot mix up the title Everlasting Father and God the Father. We are taught by the Lord Jesus to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But this title that is being given, Everlasting Father, this title does not mean that Jesus is God the Father. This title is not a description of the Son's relationship to the Father. It's a relationship between Jesus Christ and us, his people. It's a title that he has as he faces us, the church, his people. Now, we learn in the scriptures that God is one. There's no division in God, but that God is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son. The Spirit is not the Father. And yet God is one. God is Trinity, triune, right? He's too one to be many, too many to be one. God is one in three persons. And so when we think this way, if you grew up in the church and you hear the word Father, you immediately think of God the Father, but that that's not what God wants you to think about when you're listening and trying to understand what he's saying in Isaiah 9. In Isaiah 9, this is a title describing characteristics of this coming Messiah. He will be an everlasting father. So then what does it mean? If it doesn't mean God the Father, then what does everlasting father mean? Well, there's, there's a couple different easy ways to describe it. I want to give you some of the the different variety of responses to what this means. And I want to focus on two that were very encouraging to me. So some of the ways that it can be translated is father of eternity. Uh, Everlasting father can be translated in Hebrew, father of eternity, which means he existed before eternity. He created eternity. He is greater than eternity. He's the ruler of time and space and history in the cosmos. He's the father of eternity. 
We see in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ, the glorified Messiah, having been buried and resurrected and now ruling and reigning over heaven and earth, he comes to his apostle John and gives him the revelation of how things are going to end in Jerusalem in 70 AD and how he's going to bring this first age to a close. And in it, you see this image of Jesus. He has white hair like wool, eyes like fire, skin like bronze. And the picture is he's the ancient of days. He's the eternal one, right? He's the oldest one. And then it said, he says, I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. And that phrase, I am the first and the last, is a reference to his eternality, his outside of timeness. So that's one way Father, uh, everlasting Father can be translated. Uh, another way it's translated as Father forever. He's a Father forever. And this is very comforting, actually. Father forever means he will never stop being a Father to us. The Lord Jesus Christ will never stop being a father to those who follow him. To those who follow Christ, he will never be fatherless. We will never be fatherless. And Christ will never be childless. When a, when a, when a person dies, when a wife dies, then the husband is no longer married. He has no wife. He's a widow. And if all of the children in someone's family were to tragically die, they would no longer be a father. But that never happens to Jesus Christ because he's a father forever. You can never snatch his children from his hand. Death cannot, sin cannot, man cannot, Satan cannot. Once the Lord has a hold of you, just like a child being held by their father, and the child can grab his arm back, right? Kid can hold on. Dad says, hold on, kid, hold on. And the kid lets go, but the father never lets go. This is the relationship between Jesus Christ and all his people. He is a father forever, and he can never lose us. He will never let us be taken. And so even for children who die young in the Lord, we have confidence that they're alive and well with him, and he has not lost them. He is their father forever. And that is good news, especially in a world that is facing greater and greater darkness, greater and greater death, and more and more fear of death and disease and dying. There's another way this is translated, and that is father of the coming age. And that's true. Jesus is the founding father of our faith and the age in which we now live. In Hebrews, it says he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And we have founding fathers, like George Washington is the father of America, and Socrates is the father of philosophy, right? There's the father of jazz. But Jesus is the father of our faith, the father of the true, one true religion, Christianity, the father of all who are living. He is the founder of Christianity, and he is the one who gives us faith. If you trust in Christ... If you've been born again, if you have faith in God, that is something he created and gave you. Romans 12.3 says, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought, but think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. The faith you have is given and the faith that you have is created by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the founder of our faith. So in that sense, he's also a father. So if you sinned, if you've turned away, if you've gotten yourself into a dark place, call upon him. He is holding fast to you. And the founder of the faith, it says that he has, he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That means he will grow it and increase it and help restore you. He'll make you stronger, firmer, and steadfaster if you call upon him in your darkness. Because he is the founder of our faith and the father of the age to come. And at that time, it was an age to come. Now we live in a time when Christ is ruling and reigning in heaven, where saints are no longer waiting in Abraham's bosom in Hades. But when we die, we go right to the to the place the Lord is to be with him. We live in a time when 
uh, Satan has been bound in his ability to deceive the nations. We live in a time when men can be free from their sin and death. We live in a time when these things that used to rule over the world have been broken. And now the Lord is marching through every nation, gathering people into his kingdom. This is the new age that we live in. But there are two specific ways in which everlasting father has been very interesting and encouraging to me. And that's what I want to talk about here at the end. The first way in which he is an everlasting father that I find very meaningful is he is the federal head, the federal head of his people, the federal head of the church. The federal head is someone who represents his people. So this passage in Corinthians, it summarizes who he is in this way. First Corinthians 15, 21 says, for as a man, as by a man came death, death came into this world by a man, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection, eternal life has come through a man. For as in Adam, in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What does this in Adam and in Christ mean? What it means is this. All of the human race all descend from one man, Adam. Evolution is nonsense. It's just nonsense. The human race was created by God. First Adam and then out of Adam, Eve, and then through their union, their children, Seth and Cain and Abel and the girls, and it goes on and on and on. We all descend from Adam. And if you read Genesis 1 through 3, you find out what happened to the human race. All of us in the loins, so to speak, of Adam were there when he was in the garden and when he ate the fruit that God commanded him not to eat, when he sinned against God. And in sinning, he died. And when he died, we died. When he sinned, we sinned. When the judgment of God fell upon Adam, it fell upon all of the human race. And so through our connection to Adam, he being our head, our representative, the federal head over all of humanity, we all died. We all plunged into darkness and into gloom. All the trouble and pain and sin and death that you see around you, it is all the consequences of the sin of our first father, Adam. And we are all guilty with him. That is the world in which God created and you may think, well, that's not fair. How come his sin counts against me? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Because that's not the end of the passage. It goes on to say, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And what that means is that all who are in Christ are now alive. All who are in Christ are now made righteous. All who are in Christ have been forgiven. When Christ lived a perfect life, we lived a perfect life. When Christ perfectly loved and obeyed the Father, we perfectly loved and obeyed the Father. When Christ earned all the blessings and rewards and promises that God stacks up throughout the Bible, that he promises to give 100% to those who fully obey him and fully trust him, Christ won all of those good things. And we won all those good things if you are in Christ. And when Christ died, we died. When he was punished for sin, our sin was punished. The debt was paid in Christ. And when he was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead. So that we are alive by a different kind of life. The life of God, the eternal life, the spirit. We, we strain words to describe the kind of Zoe life that is in us now. This life that we have, this eternal, never-ending, never-stopping, always-growing, amazing life that can never be snuffed out, this light in us was created when he rose from the dead. And now all who are in him have that life. 
And when he ascended to his throne, the throne of David, and now rules and reigns over the cosmos, we are ascended with him. We now rule and reign. We rule and reign over the enemy, over Satan. We can cast him out and push him back. We have power over sin. By the power and wisdom that God gives us, we can rule and reign our families, our marriages, our jobs, our businesses, everything we have. We can rule and reign it in justice and righteousness and wisdom. How come we're so righteous and just and wise? And when I say righteous and just, of course, I mean in comparison to like who you used to be. I don't mean in comparison to like the Lord Jesus, but we're, we're growing. How can you be just and right, righteous and wise? How can that grow in you? Because he is growing it in you. How come I get all these good things? How come I get all this life and forgiveness and blessing and power? How come I get that? Because you are represented by the everlasting father, Jesus Christ. But if you're not, if you're trusting in your own righteousness, if you have rejected Christ as your Lord, if you've not confessed your sins to God, if you've not agreed with God that you are guilty and worthy of death and eternal hell because you think that you're a good person, because you grew up in a Christian home, because your mom and dad are Christians, and so you think that makes Jesus your everlasting father, you are dead in your sins. You are dead in your sins in your father Adam. Adam is the father of all the graveyards. He's the father of all the dead. If you want to justify yourself and hold up your own standards, your own righteousness, your own works. Look, I'm a good guy. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. You know, I help people out. I'm a good guy. God, God likes me. If you think that, you are still dead in Adam. Because that's not how it works. That's not what God says about you. There are only two fathers that matter in this case. There's your father, Adam who is the father of the dead. And there's the everlasting father, Jesus Christ. And if you want to move out of Adam and in to Christ, then you do that by faith. You do that by believing and receiving the forgiveness and grace of God. And you do that by honestly, humbly submitting to what God says about you. You don't say, I know me and I know him and I know how we're doing and everything's good. That is arrogance, because in his word, he has said that is not the case. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. By the works of the law, no man will be justified. Unless you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will not be saved. But if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus said, nobody can see the Father unless they are born again. Jesus said that I have been given life as the father has life in himself. So the son has been given life and he gives life to anyone he chooses. You have to be born again into the new humanity, into the new family with the new everlasting father, Jesus Christ. And if you'll do this, you'll receive all that God has promised. Sins are washed away. Grace is poured in and your life in the kingdom of God will never end. This is what everlasting father means. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? How glorious is that? And that was promised 700 years ago. You can see why they'd be so excited and why we celebrate the birth of this king today. The second way in which Jesus is an everlasting father is more personal. He's an everlasting father in that he is fatherly to each and all of us who are in him. When you're in Christ, he is fatherly to you. And that means he protects you and he directs you 
and he provides for you, and he corrects you. He is fatherly to all who are in him, all who follow him, all who call upon him, who trust in him. Use whatever words you want. Those who are holding on to Christ, he is like a father to them. And that's good news. Because as you saw, he is the wonderful counselor. He is all wise. He is the mighty God. He is strong. And nobody can stop him from doing what he wants to do. And since he's the everlasting father, he loves you. Since he loves you, he wants to do good for you. And since he's strong, he can do good for you. And since he's wise, wonderful counselor, he knows what's good for you. He knows what's good. He can do what's good. He, he loves you. These are good things. And so direction and protection, provision and correction. The four verbs that every good father lives out with his children. He will protect you. You know, it says, again in Jude and in Paul, that it was Jesus who brought them out of Egypt and Jesus who protected them and provided for them. And you see him protect his people in the past. He'll protect you today. To continue the story that we started with, when the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria teamed up to destroy Judah, Judah called to Assyria. And Assyria came and destroyed Syria. And Assyria came and destroyed Israel. And then Assyria decided it was going to swallow Judah. So there before the gates of Jerusalem, King Hezekiah is staring out at an army of 185,000 Syrians. And their king, Sennacherib, is screaming out over the gates in their language, don't trust your God, don't trust your king, nobody can stop me. I destroy all kings. I tear down all gates. No armies can defeat my armies, and my God is the only strong God. And so Hezekiah the king with Isaiah the prophet standing beside him, they cry out to God, save us, protect us. And the Lord, the everlasting Father, that night destroyed 185,000 soldiers. It says that when the king woke up the next morning, his army was all dead. 185,000 men killed by the Lord. The armies of Judah didn't have to march. They didn't have to open the gate. They just cried out to the Lord for protection. They humbled themselves. They confessed their sin. They acknowledged they had no right to ask of this, but they called upon his mercy and he saved them. He delivered them. He protected them. And he protected them to teach you and I that he will protect us. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. It doesn't matter what's happening in Ukraine. The nation is in a bad spot. But if you look back over 2,000 years at all the people in the kingdom of Jesus Christ and all the troubles that they have faced from the beginning till today, you can see that nothing has stopped his kingdom from advancing. Nothing has stopped him from doing good and blessing his people. So what do you need? What are you afraid of? What do you want the Lord to protect you from? Where do you need the Lord's protection in your life? Ask the Lord to protect your marriage. Ask him to protect your kids. Ask him to protect our church. He is the everlasting father and he will protect you if you ask him. And do you need direction? Counsel? Do you have decisions you need to make? Do you need wisdom? Do you not know what to do in this situation or that situation? Where's the pain? Where's the problem? Where's the need? Where's the question? As a good everlasting father, he will direct you. He will give you wisdom. Ask him, Lord, I don't know what to do here. Would you show me? And then be patient and wait and do the next right thing and the next right thing and the next right thing and God will give you direction. But of course, you must come to him. And so if you don't read the Bible regularly, 
If it's not your habit to get up in the mornings or in the afternoons or in the evenings, each day opening the scriptures to hear what God says, then you're not really seeking his direction. Because he wrote a book so that you could always find it. He wrote a book so that you could always hear him speaking. If you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. The Bible is the word of God given to you so that you can know his will and get his direction. But like a good, everlasting father, he will direct you. So ask yourself, where do you need direction? Husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters, where do you need direction? As a good and everlasting father, he provides. Did the Lord not provide manna from heaven for the people of Israel? Do you not bring quail to feed them and satisfy their hunger? Did the Lord, the everlasting father, not provide water from the rock so that they could drink? Why did the Lord do that for them? Because he loves them, but also to teach you that you can call upon him to provide whatever you need. And I've seen this happen for as long as I've been a Christian. In fact, two weeks ago, we prayed for one of the people in our community group. Their window is broken and water gets in if there's rain. There's nothing they can do and they can't get somebody to come fix it for quite a while. And so this rainstorm was supposed to come last week, supposed to be three days of rain. And we pray, God, would you turn the storm away? Storm, storm away? Would you stop the rain? Would you, would you keep it from coming in? I mean, when you pray that, you feel like an idiot. It's like, are you really thinking God's going to change the weather for you? That's insane. Do you know how complicated the weather is? And yet we prayed it. God, please protect us. Please provide for us. And guess what? There was just a little bit of rain. The rest of the days, there was no rain and no water got in. I mean, it was it was awesome. I remember thinking, man, I felt kind of dumb praying for that. But you know what? I learned something. My God hears me and my God will provide. And Jesus said that. He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear, but ask and it will be given to you. And so our everlasting father, Jesus Christ, who is fatherly towards all of his people, will provide for you. So what do you need right now? This Christmas time, you're never more acutely aware of how bad inflation is and how little money you have than at Christmas time. <laughs> so, so write it out. We need this. We need this. This is broken. We need this long term. We hope for this. We really would like this. Write it out and start asking God for it. I've asked God for things like a truck. And three years later, he gave me a truck. I mean, I've asked God for a parking space and he's provided a parking space. We've asked God for healing and he's healed. And when God does not answer, when he does not give me what I'm asking for right now, I have confidence that it's okay and that I'm supposed to endure and be patient and keep doing the next right thing because he doesn't, in his wisdom, think it's best right now. And I trust him because he's my everlasting father. I don't do it perfectly, of course, but you can have confidence even when you don't receive it, that if you're only not receiving it because a wise, powerful, loving, everlasting father has de- deemed it not best for you right now. And that's something you can live with. That gives you hope in lacking. I hope that makes sense. And then finally, he corrects us. The Assyrians, believe it or not, the Assyrian Empire, that wicked empire, was actually a rod in the hand of the Lord, the everlasting Father, a rod in his hand to discipline and punish Israel and Judah. That's what it says in the prophets, that he raised up Assyria to be an instrument of discipline. And this is what the Lord does. He disciplines his children, like all good fathers do. He corrects them, but it's not done to punish and to, it's not done out of wrath for those of us are in Christ because all the wrath and punishment that we deserve was poured out on Christ. When God disciplines us as his children, he does it out of love for our good. It's always edifying, constructive, formational to build us up. And so you may be facing hard things in your life. 
And much of the trouble in our lives is actually a form of discipline from the Lord. And so the way you respond to the everlasting Father, if you follow Jesus Christ, is in humility and patience. You patiently endure and you ask the Lord to show you your sin. Ask the Lord to show you your folly and then turn from it in humility. Ask him for forgiveness. Commit to changing your actions, changing your behavior, your thoughts, changing to be in line with his word and ask God to stop the damage, the punishment, the fire, the discipline. Ask him to deliver you and God will do that. He is merciful. It says in Hebrews that he disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. And those who are trained by it receive a peaceful harvest of righteousness. And so as his children, we want to receive that as well. Well, I hope this is uh, encouraging to you. And this name, Everlasting Father, has a lot of meaning. It's a deep well. I don't know that we've gotten to the bottom of it, but here's the promise. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, established his kingdom, and it will never stop growing. As people come into the kingdom of God, they learn to love the Lord. They learn to love his law. Their lives are transformed, and they pass that on to the next generation and the next generation. This world is transformed. There's a great deal of darkness in this world, but that darkness is never going to consume the light. In fact, if we walk faithfully with the Lord, our everlasting Father, the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, if we walk in faith with him and we do it as a community here, our children and our children's children and all those who are saved through our ministry, that will expand and expand like yeast through dough, like a mustard seed grows into a large tree. This is how the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ grows. And the justice and righteousness that's promised, that will flow downhill from there. And so we have hope for the future. Long-term hope, even if there's going to be short-term pain. So what are some steps you can take as a response in faith? First, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to save you from your sins and make you a child of God. If you are in Adam, if you have not yet committed your life to Christ, I want to encourage you to do that. You can do that right now by simply praying, Lord, please forgive me for my sins. I trust in Jesus Christ. I want to be born again and be a part of your family. Come into my life to rule and reign all my days forevermore. Amen. Or two, call upon the Lord for direction, for protection, for provision, and for correction. And then finally, I want to challenge you to study some of those amazing passages about Christ, the person of Christ in the scriptures. Some of the passages we looked at, Colossians, uh, uh, Jude 5, um, 1 Corinthians 10. Just read those passages and think about what that means. Those, those are awesome. Take some time to study those as an act of worship this week. Our Lord Jesus Christ will protect us. He'll provide for us. He'll rule over us all of our days and those of our children if we continue to walk with him by faith. And if in your own life, whatever you need and whatever, wherever you are, you call upon him. His cupboards are full and his home is secure. So come and enjoy Jesus Christ this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would encourage and apply it to our lives everywhere you want it to be. In Jesus' name, amen.